how come we're not seeing more new believers in the church? I mean, after all, when was the last time someone came to Christ through the ministries of this church? I mean, other churches in this town seem to be bringing a harvest of new converts. Why aren't we? What's wrong? And so the question goes. And then after that question goes blame, right? Well, it's those leaders. If, if the leaders would just do this, or if the pastor would just preach more hellfire and brimstone, or if, 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 right? Depending on your spiritual gift. If we cared more for our community and, and loved them, if we served them more, or maybe if we taught more on evangelism, then it would happen. If we, if we just told them more about sin, right? Or if we just get out there, just do it, as the exhorter would say. See, we have all these thoughts, all these ideas of how to correct the situation. When we look at our church and we think, well, maybe we don't measure up compared to another church. And you've seen it, haven't you? In the same community, we've seen a church that seems to have new converts to Christianity. They're beating down the church door. And another church in that same community hasn't seen a new convert in years. One church is on fire with sharing the gospel. Another appears to have had the embers of evangelism go cold. One church is alive with the busyness of evangelistic ministry. And another in that same town is searching just to find a pulse that resembles life. What makes the difference? What makes the difference? What's the difference between a church that is thriving in gospel ministry and a church that's so-so? This morning, I believe as we look at Acts chapter 11, we're going to discover some factors that lead to hindrances in gospel sharing. And then next week, as we continue on in chapter 11, we'll see some factors that make gospel sharing thrive in a church family. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to look in chapter 11 at the legacies of two different churches. It's very interesting how Dr. Luke writes here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He writes, and in verses 1 through 18, he reveals what goes on at the church in Jerusalem. And then verses 19 through 30, which we will key in on next week, he writes about the church in Antioch. There are two different legacies that are seen here from these two different New Testament churches. So first, there's the, the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch. But as, as we kind of discover more about these churches, we realize that the church in Jerusalem is the first church. It is the first church. Back in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when people were saved and came to know Jesus and 3,000 were added that day, that was the first church of Jesus Christ. It's an older church now by the time we come to chapter 11. Because what we find is, at the end of chapter 11, this church in Antioch is established. It's a later church. It's a younger church. It's not quite as old as the church in Jerusalem. 
As we look at the church in Jerusalem, we see that it is a great example. In fact, I don't know if you remember it. It's been a long time ago, but in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it is one of my key verses that I pray often for Cornerstone Baptist. Because the church in Jerusalem, when it started, that description says that those believers devoted themselves. They committed themselves As priority in their lives, they made this devotion to be devoted and committed to, first of all, the the teaching of the word, to fellowship, getting together and caring about one another, to worship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I think that is such a huge example of what any church should do, even today. So they're a great example, the church in Jerusalem. But the church in Antioch has great evangelism. I mean, their evangelistic ministry is incredible. And what we see is it's from Antioch that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and then Silas are sent out to make other disciples of all nations. They have incredible evangelism going on there in Antioch, and we'll look at it next week. But here's the bottom line comparison. In, in the church that it's in Jerusalem, sharing the, the gospel-sharing ministry is hindered. And we're going to see that. But when you look at Antioch, sharing the gospel, the gospel-sharing ministry is infectious. It's in, in influential. It's, it's, it thrives. There's this distinction being made, I think, in this chapter between a church that is yeah, doing good stuff and a church that is actually thriving in sharing the gospel in their community and beyond. And I want to ask the question, what's the difference? If we're sitting here and some might say, we haven't seen a new convert at Cornerstone Baptist for years. Some might say that. So the question is, why not? Could it be that we've fallen into some of the same factors that were in Jerusalem in that church? And I would say, we have to at least consider it. And I'd probably say, beyond that, absolutely. So I believe, dear church, what we're looking at today specifically is, while it's not fun to hear, it's necessary. And I've been praying for the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts individually, but even more so as a church family. And even more so as leaders in this church, as a pastor of this church, I've been praying for the Lord to work in my heart. Because what I want to do this morning is in looking at those 18 verses that we just read, I want to see three factors that hinder the gospel ministry in a local church. I think there are three factors here that demonstrate why the the gospel ministry was hindered even in this wonderful, great first church of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? So let's take a look. Three factors that hinder the gospel ministry of a local church. And the first is found in in verses 1 and 2. And and let me set the stage. Let me remind us of where we've been. It's been a couple weeks since we've been there. But in chapter 10, we noted the conversion of Peter, right? 
He's converted not to the Christian faith, he's already a Christian, but he's converted in chapter 10 to the conviction that the gospel of Jesus Christ truly is for all people, not just his people, not just the people he got along with, not just the people he was comfortable with, but even with a Roman soldier. (gasps) The Romans had charge over them, and how in the world could the gospel be for them? But Peter is convicted by the Holy Spirit by the end of chapter 10 that certainly the gospel is for all. It's his conversion to that conviction. And as he's there, what we see is this very strong conversion because what you'll notice at the end of verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 48, is they asked him to remain for some days. Here is Peter, and he would have nothing to do with Gentiles, but now he remains for some days with Cornelius and his family. And he's converted to the point where he stays with these Gentiles, which which. Seven days ago, five days ago, he would have never done. And so then he decides it's time to go back to Jerusalem. And I'm wondering what he's thinking. How would you feel as you're walking back to Jerusalem? How would you feel? What would be going through your mind? I mean, I think for sure I'd be praising the Lord. Lord, I can't believe you're doing this incredible thing. This is amazing. The gospel is not just for us. It's for all people. I cannot imagine. I cannot believe what you've just done. There'd be worship in my heart. I'd be excited about what's next. What other, what other people can I, can I share Jesus Christ with? I think the bottom line is there would have been an excitement, encouragement in Peter's heart. He would have been amazed at the grace of God. But then guess what happens? He gets to Jerusalem. And he doesn't find the grace of God, does he? There's there's no grace there. Notice what happens. Verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him. Criticized him. You see that word? Criticized? You know what it means? Criticized. They put him down. They weren't nice to him. Peter comes. He's full of excitement. He cannot believe the grace of God. And he's met with ungrace. And it's by this group of people in the Jerusalem church known as the circumcision party. There's a party to belong to, right? How'd you like to be the chairman of the circumcision party? I believe that later on, Paul deals with these guys when he writes to the Philippians. I believe they later on become what we know as the Judaizers. They're they're a group of people that think that in order for Gentiles truly to be saved, they have to go through all the Jewish rituals first before they can be truly saved, including circumcision. So these group of people, they're called the circumcision party. It was a group, it was a a sect, if you will, in that church in Jerusalem. And they meet Peter, who's higher than a kite, and they criticize him. I would say the first factor that leads to the hindrance of the gospel ministry in a church is swift criticism. And I'm thanking the Lord that none of us have ever experienced that in the church. Have we? Well, wait. Critic- you, I don't criticize. I just speak the truth in love. Have you heard that one? 
I have. Well, I'm not criticizing. I'm just, I'm just supposed to come speak the truth in love. Now, dear church, that is a statement that we need to follow. We need to speak the truth in love. If our brother and sister in Christ is falling into sin or falling away from the Lord Jesus, absolutely, we need to go talk to them. But there's a difference between criticism and speaking the truth in love. There's a huge difference. In fact, I read it years ago, and I have never forgotten it. I read an article about what it looks like to speak the truth in love as opposed to criticizing one another. The article said basically this. If you approach that brother or sister, and you cannot wait to blast them, you cannot wait to show them the error of their ways, you cannot wait to tell them how wrong they are, that's criticism. But if you approach your brother and sister and your heart hurts because you're needing to do this, that's approaching them with truth in love. You see the difference? One says, I cannot wait to put you in your place, man. The other says, I hate to do this, but I care about you. And I want to follow the word of God and I got to bring this up. Look Look at what the word says and look what you're doing. See the difference? See, Peter was criticized. That's the first. They came and they could not wait. I mean, it's almost the, the understanding there in verse 2 is almost like they couldn't even wait for him to unpack his stuff. They were there in a heartbeat and they could not wait to criticize him for what he had done. See, I believe that is such a huge hindrance to the gospel. Isn't it? I mean, let me ask you a question. A group is trying to invite you to join them. And you sit there, and it doesn't take long before you're noticing them judging and criticizing each other. Do you want to belong to that group? No way. I don't. See, it's a hindrance when you and I are criticizing one another. I'm going to go a little bit further here. I'm going to step out on a limb, and you may saw it off, but that's okay. But I feel convicted. I need to do this. It's a hindrance when our church Christian leaders write books criticizing other Christian leaders. Oh man, I have heard from unbelievers go, you want me to follow Jesus after this guy writes a book against this guy? Church, that does more harm for the gospel than good. Now, absolutely, we stand for truth. Please don't hear me say I'm giving up truth. This is truth. We stand on truth. But when we start criticizing one another, when we start waiting for every chance we get to put down one another, the gospel ministry is hindered. It hurts the gospel ministry because what it does is it means we're saying one thing with our mouth. Oh, God loves you. He showered his grace on you by sending Jesus. Jesus has died for you and risen again for your sins. He loves you so much. And then we go over here. I'm getting the idea here. I'm giving you the idea of what we do. It hinders the gospel ministry. So what we read very first, in Jerusalem, Peter goes up to Jerusalem, and right away, he is blasted. He's criticized. And I'm just saying today, dear church, we need to ask that question. Is that going on here? Could that be one of the reasons? 
that we haven't seen tons of new people come under Jesus Christ here? Could it be? So Peter goes into Jerusalem. They criticize him. And then notice what they say in their criticism. And here's the second factor. He says, verse 3, they say, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? You see that? You, Peter, you should know better. You went to uncircumcised men. It's bad enough that you go to them. It's bad enough that you let them in your house. It's even worse that you go into their house. You went to them. But what's even worse than all of that is you sat down and had a meal with them. That's where the fellowship is. You can't have fellowship with Gentiles, uncircumcised. You see, here's the second factor. See, there is swift criticism, but here there's strict isolationism. You see what they're doing? It's us versus them. You mean you went to them? How could you go to them? Got to stay here with us. We're isolated. We're, we're somehow better. We're, we're holier than thou. We're, we're more wonderful. How dare you go and sit with them, let alone eat with them? See, there's this, this isolationism that's there. And dear church, we got to understand, it's, it, it's something that had been going on for ages. And it's something that was set up even by God himself, as we said a few weeks ago. God told his people, be holy. Be set apart from the rest of the nations because I'm holy. I'm set apart from all the rest of creation. You be holy because I'm holy. Set yourself apart. But what they're needing to understand and what we need to understand is the things have changed because of the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no us versus them. There is an us and a them. Okay, There's an us and a them. There are those of us who have put our trust our faith in Jesus and there are those who we're praying would put their trust and faith in Jesus but it's not a versus it's not us versus them you get that mentality and pretty soon you're isolating yourselves I've heard that churches can become these these ivory towers where we just kind of come in together and we protect ourselves from the rest of the world isolationism And it makes us feel good. It makes us feel safe, doesn't it? It makes us feel wonderful because because we don't want to go out there. We don't know what they're going to say. We don't know what they're going to do. I mean, they might cuss. We don't want to, we can't do that. Let's just kind of protect ourselves in the ivory tower here, us versus them. And that's what was going on. These guys came to Peter. Peter, you joined them. What are you thinking You know better. Don't you know better? Now stop and think for a moment. Peter, at this point, hasn't even explained what has happened. They haven't heard his story. And already, they've been criticizing him. Already, they've been setting up this separate isolationism. And they haven't even heard his part. All they know is Peter went and ate with these uncircumcised people. And I would have a hunch that they heard that They got saved. And instead of rejoicing over the fact that they got saved, they go back to us versus them. Isolation. Huh. We never do do that. I I heard this a 
couple weeks ago, actually, from a guy making comments on this passage. And he says, you will never share the gospel with someone that you secretly despise. Us versus them. I despise them. You want me to talk to them, but don't you know they drink? Don't you know they smoke? Don't you know they cuss? Don't you know they go out partying? And we go, yes, they need Jesus. They need Jesus. But when we set up this isolationism, us versus them, the gospel will never go forward. The gospel will never go out. It's the second factor of a church that is hindered in the gospel-sharing ministry. We've got to get rid of this, this, this strict isolationism. And now I've got to catch up in my notes and make sure I didn't miss any good, good tidbits. But the third one then, the, the, the third factor is going to take a little bit to unfold here. And it starts at verse 4 of chapter 11, because then Peter finally begins to explain. And notice in verse 4, he begins to explain to them in order. So he's, he's going in chronological order. He's just saying, hey, I'm just going to tell you the way it is. And I'll give you a little hint right up front. Basically, what Peter is responding with is this. Guys, don't blame me. This is God's fault. Basically, that's what he's saying. Now, you may be aghast at that. How could you blame God? But that's what Peter's doing. Peter starts off by saying, this is God's fault. Look it. It was God's word. Notice. Notice what he says, verse 5. Verse 5, he says, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Now, notice, first of all, notice where it came from. Heaven. It didn't come up. <laughs> it didn't come from the side, it came down, and Peter specifically says, this is a vision from heaven. Well, who dwells in heaven? God. This is God's vision coming down to Peter. Peter's assuring them this is of God. And then he goes on. And I observed, uh, looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And again, if you'll remember, and we're not going to get into it, but if you remember back in chapter 10 when the vision takes place, we mentioned this is nothing this is not about dietary laws. What God is explaining is the things that used to be unclean, now because of Jesus Christ, are no longer unclean. The things that you used to be, have to stay away from, now in Jesus Christ, are the things that you need to go toward. Specifically, those who don't know about Jesus Christ. And in chapter 10, Peter uh, contemplates it, here, he's understanding it, but he's just giving it to them. And so he reminds them that when, what he first said, verse 8, But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. And then again, Peter says, This was an emphatic word from God. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. Peter says, Listen, this was a word from God, not me. This was a vision from God, came down from heaven. And then the word from God was, don't make unclean 
what God has made clean. Don't do it anymore. So he says, I'm just telling you, here's, here's the word from God. But then now he goes further as he blames God. It's not only a word from God, but now comes the providence of God. After this happened three times, it went up again into heaven from where it came. And then look at verse 11. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent or in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. This is God's providence. I had just seen this vision. I had just heard this word from God. And all of a the sudden, there are these men. Oh, they're there. The providence of God. These men show up. They were sent from, and he doesn't t- tell us it's Cornelius, but it's Cornelius. They were sent there to me. The providence of God. Furthermore, this providence of God goes as he learns what God had done in, in, in Cornelius' heart. Verse 12, And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. And again, that word distinction, as we saw in verse, or chapter 10, is also the word discrimination. Making no discrimination. God had spoken. And now the Spirit tells him, go without discrimination. And then it goes on, verse uh, verse, uh, 12. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And then here's further providence. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter, and he will declare to you, listen, what was uh, Cornelius waiting for? A message by which you will be saved, you and your household. Cornelius needed to be saved. He was a, he was a, a God-fearing man. He prayed regularly. He gave to those who were in need. And God knew that, but he was not saved. He needed to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And the angel told Cornelius, you go send for Peter, and he's going to bring this message. And it's this message of how you can be saved. And remember we said there are people in Madras, Oregon. There are people in Jefferson County and in all of Oregon and all of the states and in all of the world who are just waiting to hear this message of how they can be saved. And you and I have it, don't we? You and I have that message. Jesus died on the cross for our sin. The sin of the whole world. My sin, your sin. And he rose again from the dead proving that he can take care of sin and give us eternal life. It's the gospel. We have the message that brings salvation. Cornelius sent for Peter so he could hear. And Peter goes on. And and I love what he says. Verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them. Now, I'm a preacher, I'm a pastor, and sometimes babies will cry, and we love babies here. Please don't hear me say otherwise. I am so glad we have a bunch of kids. I love it. But there are distractions sometimes, right? There are distractions. And here Peter is just saying, I was in the middle of my sermon, and God ruined it. I hadn't even gotten to my third point yet in my application, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit comes upon them. It's God's fault. Because not only is, did he give a word, not only did he uh, bring providence into it, but now 
He brought his grace because as I'm speaking, Peter says, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Spirit. And notice his conclusion, verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? He's blaming God. It was God's word. It was God's providence. And it was God's grace. These Gentiles received the Holy Spirit just like we did when what happened? When we too believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. They were saved. The Holy Spirit came upon them so that they could understand that they were saved. And Peter basically comes up with this question. Who was I to say otherwise? If God gave such a grand display of his grace on these people, then who was I to stand in his way? Or to put it negatively, if I were to say this is not right, this is not happening, I would put myself in a position of opposing God. And he's basically challenging this circumcision party. He's saying, listen, it's true of you. You're going to have to positively accept the grace of God that was poured out upon even these Gentiles, or you're going to put yourself in opposition to God. It's up to you, he says. And so notice what it says, and here we're finally coming to our third point. You thought, I forgot, huh? But the third point is in verse 18. I want you to see something. When they heard these things, they fell silent. When they heard these things, they couldn't say anything else. Peter had shared in order what had happened. He came to this conclusion, either you're going to accept the grace of God that was poured out on these Gentiles as well as us, or you're going to oppose God. And what could they say? They had no further argument. And then the Scripture says, they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Okay, now you're going to have to hang on here. But the third factor that is a hindrance to the gospel ministry in a local church is underlying skepticism. Underlying skepticism. In my best study of these, this verse, especially verse 18, when it says they fell silent, it's not saying they wholeheartedly agreed with Peter. It's that they could not argue with Peter. Well, then you may say, well, pastor, then, then how in the world are they praising God and glorifying God, saying, well, then even he can save the Gentiles when they turn to him in repentance. What's that all meaning? Well, what else could they say? I believe in even all of this, there is this underlying skepticism that's going on in their hearts. And why do I say that? <laughs> Two reasons. In chapter 12, something very interesting happens in the church at Jerusalem. And sadly, we're not going to get there before Mona and I take off on our Sabbath rest, so you're going to have to read it yourself, which is a really good thing. But in chapter 12, all of a sudden, we see James rising up, the half-brother of Jesus, rising up as the key leader in that church in Jerusalem. Do you know what else James is called? James the Just. He's also known as James the Just. And I believe F.F. F. Bruce hits it right when he says this. 
about the reason they put James the Just in charge of that whole church. He says, James at least enjoyed a public reputation which was unspotted by any suspicion of fraternizing with Gentiles. That's why he's called James the Just. I believe, based on what they do, right in the next chapter, this church has this underlying skepticism Okay, we can't do anything else but say, yes, God has re- given uh, salvation to Gentiles. When they repent, we, we, we have to say that. But there's still this, oh, I don't think, I'm not sure about this. This doesn't make any sense. I, I don't think I can buy into it. I might verbalize it because I can't do anything else. But, but underlying here, I'm just not so sure. You may say, well, pastor, that's not enough evidence. Well, read chapter 15. Chapter 15 is known as the Council in Jerusalem. And do you know what it is all about? Should Gentiles be circumcised before they are entering into the Christian church? What? And you have to look at that and you have to go, wait, that should have been settled right here. Shouldn't it have been? If it were settled here, then we wouldn't have the Council in Jerusalem There wouldn't be no need. See, that's why I'm saying, even though they say these words, there's this underlying skepticism. I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure we want these people in our church. They're going to mess things up. We've we've got things nice and tidy. I mean, they're going to smoke out on the patio. That's, can you believe, oh. And what if these new believers, who all they've known is, is the world, what if they say a swear word? out we have this oh yeah salvation is for them praise god you're saved but i'm not sure we want you i'm not sure we can handle the the muck and stuff you're going to bring into this place underlying skepticism church we laugh about it and i hope you're kind of laughing because you know it's there i hope it's an awkward laugh because It's true of any church. I believe these three factors are true in any local church to one degree or another. And so the question this morning is this. What role do you play in these three factors? I mean, you can blame me as the pastor. I certainly as the pastor share responsibility of leading the church. You can blame the elders. They feel they have the same responsibility. But you also have to look as a member or an attender of Cornerstone Baptist at what role you play. Are you quick to criticize? Maybe a new believer who does say a cuss word, are you quick to put them down and put them in their place? Or are you quick to come alongside and speak the truth in love? Are you one who, you, you, you might not say it, but you've kind of isolated yourself? There's a few people in this church family that you get along with that are like you, that share the same like-mindedness as you, that look and dress the same as you, that speak the same as you, but the other group, they're weird. I'm not going to have much to do with them. Is there this strict isolationism? Or is this underlining skepticism a part of who you are? 
Ah, yeah, the gospel is for everybody, but man, I'm not so sure. I question whether they're saved. I question whether they really should be a part of this church. I question whether they really should be a member or whether they should be baptized or whatever. And what happens here, dear church, and I'm going to close with this, is we take away from the grace of God. Peter would have been on cloud nine, seeing what he just saw, recognizing that the grace of God is for everyone. I can't imagine what his heart would have been like going back into Jerusalem. And he gets to Jerusalem, and it's like this pin that pops this balloon immediately, just like that. Criticism, isolationism, skepticism. He's met with all of that. And it takes away any of God's grace that he could brought back back into the church. Now, now, Now let me say this. The church in Jerusalem is a good church. I don't. I, I, I talked to some other pastor friends of mine. Have you ever talked negatively about the church in Jerusalem? Because I'm not sure I've heard a, a preacher preach against the church in Jerusalem. I'm not preaching against the church in Jerusalem. It served its, its, its purpose. It, it was the first church, but by this time it's an older church, and they've gotten kind of settled in back into the, the old ways. And I know that that can happen to any church. And so the question this morning is, do you play a role in one of these three factors? Let's pray.